0: Welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Dr. Kristen Schmidt-Bauer, and I'm a pediatric resident at the Medical College of Georgia. During today's episode, we will review the clinical approach to a child that presents with a limp. To help with our discussion today, I am joined by Dr. George Shu, who is a pediatric emergency medicine physician at the Children's Hospital of Georgia, and Dr. Omed Kilji, who is a current fellow training in pediatric emergency medicine at the Medical College of Georgia. Welcome, guys.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here today.
2: Yes. Thanks, Kristen, for having us. So in the ED, we get kids who come in frequently for difficulty walking. For most children, the cause is something easily identified. For example, the child was running, rolled his ankle. However, a limp can be a sign of a serious condition, such as an infection or even malignancy.
1: That's right, Omid. The differential diagnosis for a child that presents with a limp is broad. Our goal today is to help the listeners formulate a differential diagnosis that's appropriate based on a systematic approach. We will focus on a few key identifying physical exam findings, review of systems, and indications for labs and imaging and also when to recognize when a subspecialist needs to be involved. Kristen, could you start us off with our first clinical case?
0: Sure. So we have an 18-month-old male who presents to the emergency room for refusing to walk for the past two days. He was previously healthy with no significant past medical history. His mother reports that he had a runny nose and cough about a week ago. His temperature in the ER is 39.4 degrees Celsius.
1: Okay. So we have a developmentally normal toddler-aged child who has not been walking for at least two days. He is getting over a possible cold but has a fever now. Dr. Kilji, what's your initial differential diagnosis with this information we have so far?
2: There are a few things that we can't miss in a limping child. This child has an elevated temperature of 39.4 degrees Celsius. We have to rule out infections. But we also should consider neoplasms or traumatic injuries. Other diagnoses like inflammatory diseases, neurological diagnoses, and developmental conditions should also be on the differential.
1: Great. I've got a really helpful mnemonic that our listeners can use to formulate the differential diagnosis. The mnemonic is stop limping. S is for septic arthritis. T is for toddler's fracture. O is for osteomyelitis. P is for Perthes disease. L is for limb length discrepancy. I is for inflammatory. M is for malignancy, P is for pyomyositis, I is for iliopsoas abscess, N is for neurologic, G is for gastrointestinal, and we also can never forget to consider non-accidental trauma. Great tip, Dr. Xu. Okay, Kristen. In the ER, your very first look at the child will help you decide how ill a patient is. What do you notice about this child as soon as you walk into the room?
0: Well, the boy is laying on the exam table. He appears uncomfortable. I notice that he is keeping his right lower extremity flexed at his knee and right hip rotated outwards. On physical exam, there is erythema and warmth of his right hip, as well as tenderness to palpation. There is mild swelling of the area. The patient has decreased active and passive range of motion. I attempt to gently place the child in a standing position, but he cries as soon as you lift him up.
1: So, Kristen, you bring up some really important findings. You can get a great deal of information by examining how the child is sitting or laying on the exam table. Pediatric patients naturally want to settle in a position of maximal comfort. You should also include a general inspection, palpation, and range of motion in your exam. Gait is also a very important diagnostic tool. One trick that I like to use is to pick up the child, put them a few steps away from his or her family member, and watch them walk. This will help you better observe their gait. Are they readily walking or limping towards their parent or guardian?
0: What are the different types of gait we can see in this group of patients?
1: So a person's gait actually involves three distinct phases. The contact phase involves the heel strike when the foot is flat. Next is stance, which is the weight-bearing phase. And lastly, we have propulsion, which is when the weight is transferred to the toes following with a push-off. An abnormality in any of these phases can affect a person's gait. There are actually five different types of gait abnormalities that can help us narrow down our differential diagnosis.
2: That's right, a gait is a hobbling gait. The contact phase is normal but the stance phase is shortened. This is due to the patient trying to limit the time spent on the weight-bearing side. Think about septic arthritis in the presence of fever and systemic symptoms if a child presents with this type of gait.
1: There's also circumduction gait. This is when the knee of the affected leg is hyperextended and locked, causing abduction or circumduction. Circumduction gait is suggestive of a limb length discrepancy or hip or ankle stiffness. This would most likely be from an underlying neurologic or mechanical disorder.
2: Trendelenburg gait, my favorite kind of gait, can be seen in a variety of diagnoses. The Affected side's hip adductor muscles are too weak or painful to stabilize the pelvis. The unaffected side then dips towards the floor. This can be due to superior gluteal neuropathy, a biomechanical problem, avascular necrosis, congenital dysplasia of the hip, Perthes disease, or slipped capital femoral epiphysis, also known as Skiffy.
1: Next, we have steppage gait, which is when the knee and hip joints are flexed extensively during the swing phase, and this is related to a neurological deficit interfering with foot dorsiflexion. Lastly, we have aquinas gait, which is known as toe walking.
2: This is seen in those with cerebral palsy, a tight Achilles tendon, lower extremity fractures, foreign body in the foot, and limb length discrepancy.
1: That's right, Omid. Actually, did you know that even developmentally normal children also toe walk? However, in general, you should only be concerned if they toe walk on one side only.
0: In our case, a febrile 18-month-old male refusing to walk and bear weight on his legs is concerning for infectious etiologies, correct?
2: Correct, Kristen. Based on his age and presentation, we can narrow our broad differential diagnoses. I'm thinking about septic arthritis, osteomyelitis, psoas abscess, as well as transient synovitis.
1: That's a great differential. Transient synovitis is actually one of the most common causes of hip pain in children aged 3 to 10 years old. It is typically associated with a preceding viral illness. The acute inflammation that is seen in the patients typically causes pain that is self-limiting and resolves in 24 to 48 hours, and the symptoms improve with NSAIDs. But transient synovitis is actually a diagnosis of exclusion. Even though we can feel confident that transient synovitis could be the cause, we still must rule out the can't-miss diagnosis.
0: Which would be osteomyelitis and septic arthritis in this case, right? Right.
2: Yes, osteomyelitis is an infection of the bone that affects vascularized portions of the growing skeleton. This is most commonly due to an acute hematogenous spread to the appendicular skeleton. About a third of patients have a history of minor trauma. Patients with osteomyelitis will also have signs and symptoms including fever, local inflammation in the affected area, limited range of motion, no improvement with NSAIDs. However, don't be fooled. The child may also present with a more indolent onset of symptoms and can be well-appearing. Patients with diabetes, sickle cell disease, prematurity, and underlying neurovascular disease have a higher risk of developing osteomyelitis, but it can be seen in all types of patients. You don't want to miss this diagnosis because it can lead to permanent damage and disruption in bone growth.
1: Septic arthritis, on the other hand, is a bacterial invasion of the synovium or joint space. It typically presents in children 2-3 to years of age, with the predominance in males compared to females. Symptoms are acute, and the child will usually be ill-appearing. Symptoms also do not typically improve with NSAIDs. Large joints like the hip, knee, and ankle are most commonly affected. Immunocompromised patients, patients with diabetes, neonates, and those on chronic steroids are at higher risk. Delayed diagnosis can lead to rapid destruction of the joint and significant disability within hours or days.
0: So, to recap, in transient synovitis, children may or may not have a fever but appear well. They typically have preceding viral symptoms that improve with medications like NSAIDs. Patients with septic arthritis will present acutely with a fever. The child will have limited range of motion of the extremity. An affected hip will classically be externally rotated, flexed, and abducted. Symptoms do not improve with NSAIDs and the child appears sick. Patients with osteomyelitis also have a fever, signs of local inflammation in the affected area, limited range of motion, no improvements with NSAIDs, a more indolent onset of symptoms and can be well-appearing. Dr. Shu, how do you differentiate between osteomyelitis and septic arthritis? The presentation seems almost similar.
1: You bring up some good points, Kristen. In the ER, we like to use the Coker criteria which consists of four clinical predictors. First, is the patient non-weight-bearing? Second, does the child have a temperature greater than 38.5 degrees Celsius? Third, is the ESR or erythrocyte sedimentation rate greater than 40? And fourth, is the white blood cell count greater than 12,000? Finally, a CRP or C-reactive protein greater than 2.5 milligrams per deciliter was also added in addition to the Coker criteria as an independent risk factor. Omed, how do you interpret this score?
2: Okay, so each positive clinical predictor counts for one point. The probability and likelihood of septic arthritis increases as you increase points. One point has a likelihood of septic arthritis of about 3%. Two points is about 40%, three points is about 93%, and four points is a 99% likelihood of septic arthritis.
1: The Coker criteria is a quick tool if you are concerned for a septic joint. However, the criteria is mainly validated for the hip. Recent research has shown that it is not as great for evaluation for other joints such as the knee, but it is at least a logical way to start your evaluation. Remember, if you have a high clinical suspicion, regardless of score, it is important to continue evaluating with further testing.
0: So part of the Coker criteria is getting labs. Should this be part of the standard diagnostic evaluation?
1: That's another great question. If the patient is ill-appearing, consider ordering a complete blood count with differential. Get ESR and CRP levels if you suspect infection, inflammatory arthritis, or malignancy. Obtain blood cultures if you're worried about infection. If septic arthritis is suspected, Orthopedics can obtain an aspirate of the joint urgently for gram stain, culture, and cell count. If the aspirate fluid has greater than 50,000 white blood cells or more than 75% neutrophils plus a positive gram stain, then you can be pretty confident that it is septic arthritis.
0: What about imaging? When and what should I choose to order?
1: This is a great question. Imaging studies are indicated in all patients that you are suspicious for any of these dangerous pathologies, but be careful because initial imaging may be normal. For example, the changes seen in osteomyelitis are not seen until later. Omed, what type of imaging should we order for septic arthritis? If you
2: are worried about septic arthritis, the best definitive test for septic arthritis is an MRI of the extremity, but this may be difficult to coordinate emergently. So start with an anterior-posterior frog leg radiograph. This may show signs of widening joint spaces. An ultrasound is very useful in identifying an effusion in a joint and may help guide joint aspiration, but it can't differentiate between fluid that is sterile versus purulent or hemorrhagic. In osteomyelitis, radiographs may be normal or only show soft tissue edema at first. Within 5-7 days, periosteal bone formation can be seen. At 10-14 days, osteolysis can be seen. And within 1-2 weeks, reduction in bone density or abscess. Again, MRI is the definitive study as well as a bone scan.
1: So, Omed and Kristen, you bring up some great points. A lot of the pathologies we've covered today have a potential to cause long-term disability and morbidity if you miss them. Also, a lot of the findings that you will see on imaging studies, you won't see until much later. So, clinicians need to have a high index of suspicion when working up patients that present with these kind of symptoms. And oftentimes, lab findings and your clinical exam findings are the only things to rely on. So what's the next step in treatment, Omin? Once your
2: evaluation has confirmed septic arthritis or osteomyelitis, you should initiate empiric antibiotics while awaiting results of blood culture and sensitivities. The choice of antibiotics is determined based on the age of the patient and local epidemiology data. The most common cause in all cases is staph aureus, so that is often an empiric target. Remember, don't delay antibiotics in a toxic-appearing patient, but don't forget that antibiotic administration can sterilize joint fluids and potentially complicate management. So it's important to reach out to the orthopedics team for shared decision-making.
1: That's a good point. The orthopedic subspecialists often prefer antibiotics to be held until after joint aspirate because patients that have osteomyelitis or septic arthritis often require long-term parental antibiotic administration. If antibiotics are given early, they'll have sterile joint aspirate.
0: Okay. Thanks, Dr. Shu and Dr. Kilji. Let's move on to another case of a child presenting with a limb. A 15-year-old obese male presents to his pediatrician limping for the past week. He reports localized pain to his right knee. He admits that he has been exercising heavily for the past few weeks because he is tired of being bullied at school for his weight. He has been taking over-the-counter and says with minimal relief. In the office today, he is afebrile and appears comfortable on the exam table.
1: Kristen, this is a classic board question. Oh man, what's on your differential diagnosis?
2: Hmm, so this child is afebrile so I'm thinking less likely about an infectious etiology. Given the history of obesity and overexercising, my differential includes musculoskeletal complaints or overuse injury. Knee pain can also be referred from the hip, so we should do a full physical exam of the limbs before making assumptions. Other possibilities are slip femoral capital epiphysis and leg calf
1: Perthes disease. So let's first review what leg calf Perthes disease is. This is a condition that typically presents in children 4 to 10 years old. Classically, these children are small for their age. The child may present with limping, pain in the hip, groin, thigh, or knee. On exam, they have some limitation in range of motion at the hip joint. Children with Perthes disease might complain that the pain is worse after physical activity, but then gets better with rest. It usually involves only one hip. However, both hips can be affected in some patients, but at different times. Perthes disease severely limits the range of hip motion and hinders a normal gait. During the exam, it is important to observe the patient's gait. A characteristic physical finding for those with Perthes disease is the Trendelenburg gait.
2: That's right. Remember that Trendelenburg gait is when the hip adductor muscles of the affected side are too weak or painful to stabilize the pelvis. This then causes the unaffected side to dip to the floor. This is best visualized
1: from behind or in
2: front of the patient.
0: So what causes leg calvay-perthes disease?
1: Well, no one really knows what causes Perthes disease. I think of it more like an umbrella term for an avascular necrosis of the femoral head without any other risk factors. In later stages of this disease, The patient can present with the hip externally rotated with limited AB duction and internal rotation and a leg length discrepancy. The best test to diagnose is plain radiographs, where you will see flattening of the femoral epiphysis with sclerosis. However, early in the disease process, radiographs may be normal or only have an area of lucency. If the suspicion is high, a perfusion MRI can also detect early disease. Treatment is tailored to the age of the patient and stage of disease, and this usually involves pain control with NSAIDs, non-weight-bearing activity, and physical therapy to maintain range of motion.
2: Don't forget that those with sickle cell disease and chronic steroid use should be part of the differential as they may present like leg-calf perthes. So, Kristen, do you think your patient has leg-calf perthes?
0: In our case, with a 15-year-old male who has no improvement with NSAIDs, leg-calve-perthes disease is lower on my differentials. Slipped femoral capital epiphysis would be a better fit as it is classically seen in overweight adolescent males like our patient.
2: Good observation, Kristen. It's important to remember that slipped capital femoral epiphysis, or SCIFI, is also seen in females with a normal BMI, so weight itself cannot be used exclusively when developing a differential. But classically, you will have the description of an obese child on a board exam question.
1: That's right, Ahmed. Skiffy is a condition when the metaphysis slips and rotates away from the epiphysis. Ouch, that sounds painful. Skiffy leads to a painful limp that is often associated with both knee and groin pain. On physical exam, the patient's hip will be externally rotated. Pain occurs with any range of motion, and the hallmark physical exam finding is obligate external rotation of the hip with flexion. A delay in diagnosis can lead to increased slipping and long-term complications, so early identification is essential.
0: Would our next step with this patient be to obtain imaging?
2: Yes, imaging to confirm diagnoses followed by appropriate treatment. Frog leg and anterior-posterior radiographs are best to evaluate for skiffy. It is important to evaluate both hips as 23% present with bilateral skiffy. An MRI ordered later on could also be used to examine the contralateral hip. This should be an urgent referral to the orthopedic surgeons.
1: That's right. Never send a patient diagnosed with Skiffy home. Management and treatment should always involve an orthopedic consult because the treatment is surgical intervention of the hip.
0: Wow, great stuff. Okay, let's move on to our next case. A 17-month-old girl presents to the emergency room due to refusing to walk for the last day. Mom says that she has been really fussy, the child has no other medical problems, and there have been no recent fevers or cold symptoms. During the day, mom's boyfriend watches the child while she is at work. The boyfriend states that he took her to the park yesterday and she was playing fine. He does not recall any falls. On exam, the child is anxious, but there are no signs of deformities or areas of swelling.
1: Okay, Omed, what do you think about the presentation of this patient?
2: Based on the history so far, my differential would include a non-accidental trauma, fracture, or other musculoskeletal complaints.
1: That's a great differential. Let's take a moment to talk about the diagnosis of non-accidental trauma, or NAT. NATs are unfortunately one of the leading causes of childhood traumatic injury and deaths in the United States, so as a pediatric emergency medicine physician, I must know how to differentiate any injury of a child from a non-accidental trauma.
2: Yes, consider an NAT if there is poor correlation between the stated mechanism and the injury reported. Toddlers are known to be little daredevils, constantly running around and jumping, but their bones are a bit more pliable at this age and can withstand more force.
0: So it takes a lot for a fracture to occur in normally developing children.
2: That's right, Kristen. A fracture occurs when the force exerted on a bone exceeds the ability of the bone to absorb the force
1: by deforming. So if the information provided by the caretaker is lacking in detail, is ambiguous or contradictory to your exam findings, that should raise alarm bells. A delay in seeking care is also concerning. I would also be suspicious of an NAT if the mechanism of injury doesn't match the developmental age of the child. Kristen, what do you think I mean by that?
0: Well, if a child comes in with something like a femur fracture, but the child is still at an age where they are not yet walking, then I would be worried of potential abuse.
1: Orthopedic injuries highly specific to NAT are bucket handle fractures, posterior rib fractures, multiple fractures, non parietal skull fractures, scapular fractures, sternal bone fractures, and other certain types of elbow fractures. Also, it's important for providers to carefully document the history and physical exam finding in the medical record. Kristen, let's say we have rolled out NAT in our patient. What would be next on your differential for this patient?
0: Well, given her age, I'm thinking of a toddler's fracture. This happens most commonly in children aged 1 to 3 years.
1: A toddler's fracture refers to a minimally displaced or non-displaced form of a spiral fracture that occurs in the lower extremity. In other words, it usually involves the tibia via a twist and fall mechanism. Think of a child going down a slide at a playground. As a child is sliding down, one of the child's legs gets caught behind the other leg on the way down the slide. Ouch. For kids with a toddler's fracture, pain is usually mild when palpated. However, the child will scream in pain if you attempt to rotate the lower extremity. It's important to remember that most of these injuries are not associated with non-accidental trauma.
0: Do we need to get an x-ray?
2: Good question. The problem with radiographs is that it may be negative initially, so be careful when you're shooting those x-rays.
0: So how do you treat a patient with a toddler's fracture?
2: Treatment of a toddler's fracture involves a long leg splint and follow-up with orthopedics.
0: Okay, great case. But let's continue with our next and final case. An 8-year-old male presents to the ED for right leg pain for the last few weeks with worsening difficulty walking for the past two days. He is unable to characterize his pain. On exam, he appears tired and pale. You note multiple bruises on his legs, but he does not remember how he got the bruises. Based on records for a visit to the ER a year ago, the child has also lost a considerable amount of weight.
2: Wow, lots of red flags here.
0: Are we worried about malignancy?
2: It's safe to say that for this case, I'm worried about malignancy. The key symptoms you don't want to miss include non activity related or night pain, persistent and localized pain and if pain consistently only involves a single limb. Ask about the presence of systemic symptoms. This includes unexplained fever, weight loss, bruising, fatigue, and easy bleeding, which would lead us to include malignancy on our differential. On exam, examine the patient for lymphadenopathy,
1: organomegaly, pallor, and bruising. So in this case, an 8-year-old male with bruising on bilateral lower extremities, pallor, and persistent leg pain would require a workup for malignancy. Based on his age, we should consider Ewing's sarcoma, osteosarcoma, and leukemia. Both osteosarcoma and Ewing's causes bone pain. They can also have soft tissue masses and also have pathological fractures associated with them. Ewing sarcoma is the second most common bone tumor of childhood, presenting in the age range of 4 to 25 years old. There is often a palpable soft tissue mass on exam as well. On imaging, the characteristic moth-eaten, destructive, lucent lesion is seen in the shafts of long bones for you.
0: Osteosarcoma, in contrast, has a characteristic sunburst pattern on imaging, right?
1: That's right, Kristen. On
2: plain radiograph, osteosarcoma will have evidence of a periosteal reaction seen with aggressive bone lesions. It might be described as a sunburst pattern or Codman's triangle on x-ray. Osteosarcoma is seen in those less than 20 years of age, with most found in the femur, tibia, and humerus.
1: Management of this patient, in our case, would include a pediatric oncology consult. Also, this patient would need an extensive lab evaluation to rule out metabolic, hematologic, and visceral emergencies associated with these malignancies.
0: So I understand that bone pain, especially at night, is worrisome for malignancy. But what about growing pains? How do we differentiate this from malignancy?
2: Good point, Kristen. Growing pains occur in 10-20% to 20% of children and only occur at night. They can wake children from sleep, but pain is poorly localized and intermittent. Episodes of pain or discomfort can last from 30 minutes to 2 hours. However, patients will have no daytime symptoms, and physical exam is typically unremarkable. Remember to use the history to differentiate grown pains from malignancy. Always ask about the red flags we mentioned earlier.
0: Thanks, Dr. Kilji. Well, I guess it's time to wrap up our episode today. Let's summarize what we discussed.
1: A child with a limp can be due to a wide variety of conditions. This can range from mild, self-limiting events such as simple bruising, fall, strains, or sprains, but a limp can also be a sign of a serious or even life-threatening illness. Any delay of diagnosis or treatment of these pathologies can have severe consequences.
2: It's important to have a systematic approach when evaluating a child with a limp. This includes a thorough history that includes the location and description of pain, history of trauma to the area, and other systemic symptoms. Don't forget about red flags fever, weight loss, fatigue, night pain, and
1: night sweats. Those are great points. Also, when you examine the patient, Observe the child's gait, palpate the area, and test the range of motion, both actively and passively. Indications for lab evaluations and imaging should be based on the clinical presentation to help confirm your clinical signs and symptoms.
2: And remember the mnemonic is stop limping to help with your differential. When considering a child with a limp who is presenting to your office or the emergency room, S is for septic arthritis, T is for toddler's fracture, O is for osteomyelitis, E is for Perthes disease, L is for limb length discrepancy, I is for inflammatory, M is malignancy, E is pyomyositis, I is ileosomous abscess, N is neurological, and G is gastrointestinal. And don't forget to consider non-accidental trauma.
0: Thank you, Dr. Shu and Dr. Kilji, for working through these cases today.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: An additional thank you to Dr. Melissa Allen and Dr. Rebecca Yang, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Check out our website in the description of this podcast for show notes and more information about our pediatric residency at MCG. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for information and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Don't forget that free CME credit for this episode is available. Please check out our show notes and website for the link. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.